Well, good morning. In Jesus' name this morning, it's good to be here with you. I appreciate the sense of the spirit I sense here this morning. Appreciate the singing. I commend you for your choice of a hymn book. I, uh, that's, I think, the best one that's available for us right now. I think that what we sing in church, in our services, is very, very important. And I, I say this, I've said this, I read this, I think it was A.W. Tozer that said that if you have your Bible and you have a good hymn book, you go, you can go a long ways in solid theology. And so how the, the hymns are that we sing or the songs that we sing not only express, we don't only express ourselves, we teach ourselves with those good hymns. So I commend you for that choice of hymn book. I was recently, there was a church, a large church, that was discussing, there was, it was time to update their hymn book, they thought. It was a German congregation. And some they had a committee to decide how they're going to be doing this. And so one of the committee members said, well, look, there was a thousand hymns. Because this was one of the songs, this was one of the books that they were considering. It was this one, or another one that was sort of completely on the opposite end of the spectrum. And uh, so, but he said, this songbook has a thousand songs in it. We only sing about 200 songs. We only know about 200 songs. Isn't that a poor stewardship, or isn't that a waste of money to buy a songbook that has a thousand songs? We only sing 200. Is that typical German thinking? I'm not sure if it is or not. But uh, anyway, I think they made a good decision. I think they decided to, to go with, with this particular book. Anyway, that was all free. You didn't have to pay anything for that, 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 that opinion. I'd like to think about something this morning taken from uh, the, the verse in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, where it says, Love not the world. So, I'm glad to see all the young people here this morning. That's huge. And the children, the nice children's group here. But, so I'd like to ask you, as a young person or anybody else, are you concerned about worldliness? Does that concern you at all? It should. I won't give you a chance to even answer. It should. It should It should worry you. The apostles of Jesus were concerned about it. John said, the world passeth away in the lust thereof. He said, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Paul said, don't be conformed to this world. Don't fit into the mold of this world. James says, if you are a friend of the world, you're not an, you're, you're, you're an enemy of God. So worldliness, being part of the world, we've always had, there's always been the kingdom of Christ, well, ever since. There's always been a kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the world. Before Christ manifested himself as Christ, there was God's people and not God's people. If you've grown up in any type of conservative Mennonite or conservative Anabaptist setting, um, you have almost certainly heard a lot about worldliness all your life. You, it's not a new concept to you, and for good reason. Worldliness is no minor thing. Worldliness and godliness are not compatible. The more worldly, the less godly. You can't have an element of worldliness in your life without displacing an element of godliness. You just can't. 
You can't bring that in without pushing something else out. Um, and there's something about the world. I'm, 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 I'm good. I don't need to use that a whole lot more. Um, there's something about the world that has the potential that does strongly appeal to us. To, to, there's something about us that is strongly attracted to what is called the world. And what is the world? So it's good reason to be concerned about that. It's good reason to be, I have reason to be concerned about that for me. I have reason to be concerned about that for my family. You have reason to be concerned about that for your brotherhood. We do have reason to be concerned about that. Here's the problem. What is worldliness exactly? How do you define it? What, how do you put your finger on it? Throughout Christian history, there has been many things labeled as worldly. And I'm going to list some things. And this is by no means in an effort to mock people that have considered some of these things worldly. It's simply to state the fact that these things were, have been, by by people throughout history. Buttons. No buttons. You know, some people say buttons are worldly. Some people say, no, if you don't have buttons on your shirt, that's worldly. Beards. No beards. Neckties, cars, cars that aren't black, painted houses, belts, telephones, recorded music, four-part singing, sports, red shirts, white dresses, pink print dresses, cameras, or maybe still cameras are okay, but not video cameras, television, radio, movies, the internet, motorcycles, Sunday school, church houses, pulpits and church houses, church building, yeah. So all of those things have at one point, at some time, by some group, been said, no, this is worldly. We, we, we want to stay away from these things. Now, some of these things you may agree that, yes, I think we should stay away from those things. Those things don't belong in the Church of Christ. They don't belong in the Kingdom of Christ. And others, you would say, well, those are things that we actually use every day, and we don't see that really that that makes us worldly to, to do those, to those things. None of these things are specifically mentioned in the Bible. Not one of the things I mentioned here uh, are mentioned in the Bible. So what we have is a widely varied definition of what is worldly that changes from group to group and from generation to generation. And all of this by generally, I think, generally sincere people um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a real effort, in a genuine effort to keep the church and the world separate, not to let them just mix into one big thing. I think it's been generally a sincere effort to do that. And again, this is what I'm saying here is in, in no effort to disparage uh, what uh, uh, that. And and uh, because God's people have always had a uh, this is us and this is them kind of concept. That's a part of a healthy um, you just can't really have, you can't really be a part of a group of believers without developing that kind of a, of a, of a concept. And, and it seems like uh, without a practical expression of separation, it seems that it, very difficult, if not impossible, to build a community of Christ followers that endures for one generation after the next. It just seems like that's the way it is. That's not what the Bible says necessarily. That I, don't, I don't see the Bible saying that exactly like that. But you can observe for a while, and you see that's just how it—that's how it works. So, so what we need, 
What we need is a clear understanding of what constitutes worldliness that works for us, works for our children, and they take the same understanding to their children and on and on until, until Jesus returns. And that has to be a biblical understanding more than, beyond a, a cultural interpretation of what worldliness is. So let's think a little bit about what the world is. There's a world that God created. Genesis says that he created it in six days, and it was very good. It was a world of order, world of beauty, perfection, joy, harmony, and pleasure. A world with abundant resources. A pair, uh, and, uh, and included in that creation that God said was very good was a pair of people, a man and a woman, moral beings. And God gave to that man and that woman a, something that he didn't give to anything else, anyone, uh, to anything else in his created, in his creation. And that was, they could choose to love God, they could choose not to love God. They could choose to obey God, or they could choose not to obey God. He gave them a free will. He certainly had his will for them, but he did not impose that on them. He did not bind them to that. He gave them their own free will. And we know what happened. They exercised that in the wrong way, made the wrong choice, and the world that was perfect and harmonious and beautiful and yeah, just perfect, uh, made became something different. It became broken. Now it still had its elements of, it still has its elements of tremendous beauty and harmony. And in some ways, maybe you could say perfection. But it, it's, it's now a broken world. Psalm says, in, 20, in Psalm 24, verse 1 and 2, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. John 3.16, For God so loved the world. And when, when he uses that word, the word world, in John 3.16, God so loved the world, is cosmos in, in uh, Greek. Same word that John later says to us, don't love the world. He says, God loved the world. Don't you love the world? Well, how, why is that? And how is that? Um, does that make sense? Does God ask us to do something that he would not do? Does God ask us to do something that is contrary to what he does? Um, I believe that everything that God asks us to do is for one reason only, I think, and I'm I, I'm going to say this morning, I am on a journey to try to understand and learn more about what God is and what he does and what he wants from us. And I can make mistakes. I can go off on a tangent. I can say things that I think are correct, but somebody else comes along and shows me that, no, you're not correct. So I'm open to this, to you telling me, at any time today, if you want to wait till after church, it's fine. If it's so bad that it has to be corrected during the service, I, I'm okay with that too. But that might be the end of things. I probably get flustered pretty easy. I might this might that might be the end. So just keep that in mind. If you want to bring it to a stop, then just uh, make a serious correction. Then I'll say all right. Um, 
where was I going here? Oh, I think that the things that God asks us to do are for one reason, and one reason only, really, I think. And maybe I'm getting, that's, maybe that might be an extreme point, but I want to make this point pretty strong, is that God has a desire to work with us and develop us and make us into the image of who? Of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what he wants for us. And everything he asks us to do is, is for that reason. He wants us to make him, make us like he is. He, we were created in his image. He is just working day after day after day after day and using things in our lives to do, to bring us back to that. That's what he wants. And so God is not asking us, when he says don't love the world, he's not saying uh, don't do what I do. God loves the world in a different way than he's telling us not to love the world. All right. The world that God is asking us or requiring us not to love is this world that somebody described. I think it was actually an old Methodist uh, handbook of some sort that described the world as society organized outside the will of God. And that is society either by either... um, simply not taking God into account or by deliberate rebellion against him or maybe by even refusing to acknowledge that he exists. That's the world. Society organized outside the will of God. This is the will of God. Here is the world. Those are oversimplified statements, but they're meant to be just a little bit of illustration. And uh, John says, if the world hate you, in 15 verse 18, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Here again we have us and them. That's That's a concept that just runs through. And that phrase, by the way, I should... I should acknowledge that that phrase yesterday came to my mind after when we were talking to, I was talking, we were discussing, having a discussion with Brother Roger, and he, he used that term, and it, it resonated with me, and I'm, I, I don't want to, I'll give credit to Brother Roger for that, don't want to steal the, the, the idea, but it's something that is just true through, throughout history. It's always been that, us and them, and, and, um, so now there are two worlds. Uh, there's, there's a world where that has been perverted by sin. Not only the world that God created in its perfection, but there's been a world that is perverted by sin. And, and this is important. Every single thing, I think, that God has created that's good. Everything that God created is good. Every single thing that God created has a counterpart. And and that has been perverted by sin. I think, I think that's true to say that. I, somebody might be able to say that's wrong and show me that it's wrong. But I think every good thing that God created has been twisted by, been twisted by the enemy, and that's what makes it sin. That's what makes it evil. You see, Satan can't create a thing. He can't create evil. He takes something good and makes evil out of that. 
And so, evil is a perversion of good. Good was here first. And so, um, that's the world. That's the world that, that God has created, that Satan has twisted. That's the world we are not to love. That's the world that we, that God says, don't have anything to do with that. Don't, don't love that. Let's read it. First John chapter 2, verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. In these three things, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, I think we not only have a description of what the world is, but a definition of what the world is. Not only what it does, but what it is. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And I'd like to look at that. A little bit. The word lust in the Greek means, just simply means a very strong desire or longing, and it's both positive and negative. When it, in English, when they translate from the Greek, when they, when they translate from the Greek, if it's negative, they would use the word lust. If it's positive, they might use something like desire or something like that. For example, in uh, Luke chapter 22, when Jesus is saying, we're talking to his disciples. He says, with desire, I have desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. Same word. It's the same Greek word. As don't, the, when it's talking about the lust of the, the, the it's just that strong desire. And, uh, so, um, Paul uses it in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, where he talks about his desire to depart and be with Christ. But in, in John here, it's obviously talking, it's obviously used in a negative way. So let's look at these three things. Let's look at the lust of the flesh, first of all. I think the lust of the flesh is, you know what, I should probably do a little disclaimer here. I have, you're, you're welcome to, uh, well I tell you, if you try to pin me down on some of these things that I'm going to say, I'm just going to say, this is how I believe it is. I'm going to make a disclaimer right now. I can't go to the scripture and say, this is exactly why I think this. Sometimes, some of these, some of these, uh, concepts have developed kind of slowly with me. And, uh, I, you're welcome to take them or leave them as you think. But I, I believe that the, that the, um, let, let's think about the lust of the flesh. I think, Primarily, the lust of the flesh is the perversion of pleasure. Our ability to experience pleasure was designed by God, and there are many, many legitimate expressions of it. First Timothy verse six, uh, chapter six, verse seventeen. Breaking in, he's talking about the rich men that they shouldn't trust in their riches, but he said they should trust in the living God, who richly giveth us all things to enjoy. So God gives us richly all things to enjoy. So what gives you real pleasure? What do you love? What do you just really, do you really enjoy? Good friends, good food, good music, a good story, a thrilling toboggan ride, good old barn swing ride, one of these swings that swings you out over a valley somewhere, you got that feeling. Do you, you like that? Well, who do you think gave you the ability to enjoy that? 
thing. Where did that come from? Uh, that's God that gave us that, that ability and that, yeah, so a good joke, good humor, all types of recreation, hunting, fishing, swimming, uh, diving, camping, softball, volleyball, all those things. Good times with family and friends and hobbies. And our ability to enjoy the same, our ability to experience uh, pleasure is a gift from God, from our Creator, from the beginning. It's a gift. There have been serious-minded Christians through the ages who have believed that the denial of all things pleasurable would lead them closer to God. That's 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 a fact. And I certainly believe there are times for abstaining from legitimate pleasures for a time, as in fasting. Don't take food. That's totally legitimate. Do that. It's not only legitimate, it's good. But I also believe that enjoying the pleasures of life and recognizing where they come from prepares us to enjoy the pleasures of heaven. It's just part... In a, in a real way, heaven has begun for the child of God. It, it, heaven has begun in a, in a real way, I think. The same, if we have no interest in the things of heaven here, I don't know how heaven is going to be exciting for us there if we don't already have interest in, in heavenly things. So what, what, what I'm simply saying is that the, the, the abnegation of all things pleasurable does not necessarily build Christian character as far as I can see. Um, however, the lust of the flesh is the perversion of pleasure. And uh, the experience of pleasure can, can certainly become perverted. And I think it happens in, in three ways. Primarily, and the worst one, is when, when there's pleasure in causing suffering or destruction. Pleasure in destroying something. You, and you see this, you see this in children, and it needs to be worked with. It's not, it doesn't mean that they're just, um, evil. But you see this tendency, that, the the, the, the tendency to take this pleasure in being mean, and being, just destroying what somebody else has done. You know, it happens pretty young. One builds a pile of blocks, the other comes along and kicks it over because it's so much fun. Well, all right, that's children, but so that, that spirit needs to be worked with. And, uh, so, uh, and even like cruelty to animals. You know, children by nature seems like a lot of them anyway, they just like to twist the cat's leg to hear him yell and, or that step on his tail to hear it yell and, all right, so uh, that's something that if that doesn't, it often fixes itself. Children grow up and say, well, you know, that's not nice. They shouldn't do that. They begin to like their cat and stop being mean to it. Um, but, but, but anyway, what I'm saying is that pleasure in causing suffering, that's not a good thing. That belongs here. That belongs here. There are, there are actually people that really, grown-ups, that really get... In fact, I think psychologically that's considered the worst of the worst is when, a, when an adult gets pleasure from making a child suffer. It's awful. It's beyond, it's beyond, which we can even imagine makes me shiver to think of actually taking pleasure and causing suffering for a child. We, we have children. We have children. When we see them suffer, we suffer. It hurts, and that's the way it should be. And when you actually enjoy seeing them suffer, it's demonic. So, um, 
Even making people uncomfortable is a perversion of pleasure, or enjoying, I'm sorry. Even enjoying making people uncomfortable. Just, you just like to put them in a hard spot. Just make them squirm, and we enjoy that. Sometimes we need to make people squirm. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. But when that becomes pleasurable for us, that's not, that's not, that's not a good thing. So, pleasure in causing suffering or destruction, that's, that's of the world. So we're looking at not only expressions of, we're not looking at, we're not looking at only, uh, you know, actions, we're looking at the core issues here. Alright, so, Another way that Satan perverts pleasure is to, um, he takes, or, or, or another perversion of legitimate pleasure is by, simply by misuse. Um, for example, not everybody is the same, but it's pretty much universal that there's a desire for human touch. Human touch is necessary. It's a necessary part of existence. It's for Actually, people to have physical contact with each other. That same legitimate pleasure can easily move over into sensuality, um, illicit sensuality. And that's wrong. It's, it's of the world. It's not, it's not of God. So a perversion of legitimate pleasure by misuse. Or a perversion of Legitimate pleasure by overuse. Now we're talking, we're looking at all those things that we mentioned that were absolutely legitimate, uh, from the toboggan rides to the swing rides to the hunting and fishing and the food and all that. Every single one of those can be overused and that becomes a, it becomes a perversion. It's twisted out of, God gave it to us for one thing, we're, 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 we're using it in a, in a wrong way. That is, the lust of the flesh, as far as I can see. So Satan also offers pleasure. He didn't invent it, but he twists it, turns it into something different from what is intended for, and uh, and, and so that's 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 that. The, the pursuit of pleasure, or the perversion of pleasure, leads to meaninglessness. Meaninglessness. So much fun until you just pursue that and pursue that and pursue that. And it's not fun anymore. You have to do more and more. Instead of a barn swing, now you need a parachute. And after a parachute, you need a wingsuit. And after a wingsuit, you just go on and on until it's meaningless. There's nothing left. Uh, that's when you pursue pleasure. That's a perversion of pleasure. That's the lust of the flesh. Solomon discovered that for himself. All right, the next one, the lust of the eyes. Now, the lust of the eyes, as I understand it, is not... Me looking at something and lusting after that, desiring that. It is me wanting you to look at me and recognize me. That's the lust of the eyes. To be recognized, to be thought well of. So we are created, and the same creator that gave us the the ability to recognize and, and enjoy something pleasurable also gave us the need, and I say it's a need, the desire and the need. I think it's more more than just a desire. It's a need to be appreciated, acknowledged, recognized. If you weren't, if you felt totally unloved or unappreciated, how would you? How would that be? God did not create us to to really live like that. We would not do well. 
in that. So we need that. We absolutely do need that. We need to know that we matter to someone. Uh, we need to know that we play an important part in, in the life of those we love. But when God, when we take that God-given legitimate desire, when that desire, when that thing becomes a desire for fame and to be recognized and admired by those that we don't even know, that we don't even love ourselves, but we want to be thought, we want to be well thought of by everybody, we want to be recognized by everybody, and I'm not, I'm not talking about just simply having a good testimony. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the desire to be recognized and well thought of in a in a uh, in a in a in a in a in a wrong way. Um, so that becomes something different. That's the lust of the eyes. That's a perversion of of that need for recognition, a desire for fame, an obsession with reputation, like Saul when he when Samuel confronted him and said. You know what he when he did wrong at, with uh, with the Amalekites, uh, Saul said, "Okay, but uh, but bless me now in front of the people. Recognize me in front of the people. I just can't." He just couldn't allow himself to be seen as a failure in front of the people. Well, that's the lust of the eyes, and you know, the, Saul was one thing that was a long time ago. But what about me? What about me when I just really hate to acknowledge who I am in front of everybody, who I really am, who I really am, because what do you think of me? We struggle with identity, and we want to make sure that we're not, we're not identified with the wrong church. We want to make sure that we're not identified. We're, we want to make sure that, no, we're not. You, you know, somebody come, might come talk to us, and are you part of this fellowship? Oh, no. We are not part of that. We're part of you know, the lust of the eyes. All right, the pride of life, and I think the pride of life, the pride of life means the perversion of power. I'm in charge of my own life because this shows itself in two ways: to refuse to be governed. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'll do it if I want to. That's rebellion. Or to impose my will on others. They will do it my way. Um, that's control. And I think that's what the pride of life is referring to here. So we have the perversion of pleasure. We have the perversion of recognition or the lust of the eyes. And we have the pride of life, the perversion of power. One great, great gift, and I've already mentioned this, that God has given us is our free, is our free will and the right and the ability to make choices that profoundly um, affect the quality of our lives. God has given each one of us the ability to choose things that will make our lives better. He has also allowed us to make decisions that will make our lives worse. And it's, uh, it's, it's a certain, there's a, there's a, there's a, a quite a bit of, of uh, autonomy there that God has given us. And, and, and the right way to think about that is that God has given me the right to make decisions and choices that, you know, God has given me this gift. The wrong way to think about that is that I'm in charge of my life. I'm in control. And I'm going to make sure that things happen the way I want them to happen. God told Adam to have dominion over the earth, and he gave him power, and he gave him authority, and he gave him responsibility, and he gave him the ability to do that. And, and everybody 
here that understands what I'm saying, almost everybody here, has some authority. There's something that they have, they're responsible for. Because responsibility and authority are hand in hand. There's no actual responsibility can be given without the corresponding authority. And of course, you're, if you're a parent, if you try to have responsibility and no authority, it just doesn't work. If you're a teacher or a church leader, no matter who you are. And that, that just goes down. The responsibility and authority, they're just, they go hand in hand. And responsibility and authority have to be on the same level. You can't have, you can't have, you know, ten feet of authority and only want to carry on five feet of responsibility. It just doesn't work that way. You, 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 it's equal. It has to be equal. So, um, so, so God gave Adam that responsibility to have dominion over the earth and, and all of us have some authority. And, and the, and the right way to use authority is to, to, uh, help someone do something that's for his own good or for the common good. The wrong way to use authority is to make people do things for my interest or to make me look good. You see, think about that as a brotherhood. We, we, as we work with each other or as a, a church leaders, but we're, there's not, so, so as we work with each other as a brotherhood, it's for <clears throat> their good or for the common good, not to make me look good or not just to, so that they can do it my way. That, that, that's, uh, the, that's the right way, to do it for the common good or for the person's good. You know, um, every dictator in history has always taken over. I'm not that much of a historian that I can really say that with authority, but, but they always say this. Um, they do this in the interest of national security. And I'm going to have to take over because, you know, in the interest of national security, we're going to have to do this and that. The truth of the matter is that it is to, uh, the real reason is to protect his own personal interest most of the time. Now, we don't have to be in a position of authority to make people do what we want them to do. It's often done by manipulation. Today, the current, uh, uh, probably the most, uh, valuable currency right now for manipulation is just this victim mentality. I can, if I'm a victim, I can make you do almost anything I want you to do because I'm, I'm the victim. It, it's just, it's a perversion. It's a perversion. And it's, it's part of the world. So we find ourselves in that situation where we're, we're, we're manipulating our way through life. That can be for anybody. It doesn't have to be someone that is out there in Eugene. It can be right here. Uh, it's a, that's a bad deal. So the desire to be in control or have things my way is such an insidious form of worldliness because we always think we're doing it for for the good. It's the right thing to do. And so the end justifies the means, sort of. That's how we think. We're just trying to make sure things turn out right. In closing, I'd just like to make several observations here. The world can come into the church no matter what the church looks like. It might look perfect. It can be full of the world. The world is false, even though it may be very appealing. The world simply cannot satisfy. You get your way by manipulation, the results will not satisfy you. Promise. Because it's of the world. We're made in the image of God and only in Him can we find true 
purpose and satisfaction. So I think that John's definition of what the world is, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is a definition that's good for as long as the world stands. Anywhere we go, it's an important, and it's important, it's important that we get it right. And the problem is not so much, in my opinion, the problem is not so much that we misunderstand world, uh, misunderstanding worldliness is that, oh well, so actually we were calling something worldly that wasn't really worldly. And we denied ourselves some things, um, you know, for example, we denied ourselves, uh, I don't know, whatever. Because uh, we were taught that it was worldly, and it wasn't even worldly. And now we were cheated of all that. That's not really the problem. That's not the problem I'm concerned about. The problem I'm concerned about is that while we're thinking about other things, that real worldliness creeps in. These these things that we were talking about this morning, they're right here. And, and then sometimes we, in our efforts to defend against some things that we think are worldly that might be coming into the church, we're using the world's way of defending against them. Control, manipulation, power struggles, things like that. It's just, the world is here already. <laughs> we better recognize that and, and deal with that before we're ready to deal with something else. So why does this all matter? It matters because when Jesus comes, he will take to himself those who have kept themselves by the world, from the world by his standards, not those who have made their own definitions of worldliness. Love not the world. You decide what you will love. Love is an act of the will, not of the emotions. Emotions are certainly involved in love, but they're not the foundation. You shall love the Lord thy God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your might, that word heart doesn't refer to the center of our feelings or our emotions. It refers to the center of our will. In other words, we decide whether we love God or not. It's not, we're not, it's not that we feel like we want to or we don't want to because that varies from day to day. But when we, we decide whether we love God, we decide whether we love our wife or our husband or our, our brother. We decide whether we love the world, excuse me, or not. Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. If we just do those two things, if we do those two things, we have wonderful fellowship with each other and with God. May the Lord bless each one of you here.